Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self abandon. The amazing spider talk. The amazing spider talk. Come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Kavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for Episode 10 of the second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and – well, let's say actually three fans mm. and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yeah, Dan. In this second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, we've been taking a look at how Spider-Man has hit the big time during the Stanley and John Romina senior run on the book in the 1960s. Well, in this episode, we're going to be talking about Marvel's early attempts to bring Spider-Man out into the world as a physical object, whether that be fan club records, toys, pins, Spider-Man cutouts, Spider-Man, the flamethrower, merchandising, merchandising, merchandising. So to help us with this episode, we will also be joined by a very special guest, pop culture and memorabilia expert Rob Bruce. Uh, many of you may know uh, Rob from his multiple on-air appearances, and uh, he also got credit as a producer uh, as a toy memorabilia consultant to Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash on AMC's Comic Book Men show, uh, a show I might have appeared on in, in an unaired episode the world may never know. Uh, <laughs> well, anyway, he's, Rob has been an expert in this field for decades. Uh, and in addition to Comic Book Man, he is also the, uh, one of the founders and creators of the uh, New Jersey Harkon and Film Festival, which he'll talk about a little, uh, too, in this interview. So uh, he's going to talk us through all of these early 60 toy attempts. Although, uh, just as a fair warning, Dan, uh, we had to conduct this interview via cell phone. So uh, if the quality isn't uh, the usual crystal clearness that you're used to from Amazing Spire Talk. We apologize in advance, but we, we, we urge you to, to, to hang with us because it's a great interview with a lot of insights about toys and figures and games and everything else from this era, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like we say on all of our episodes, this episode wouldn't be possible without support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests like Rob Bruce, who we have on the show, and do all of our research that we do. So if you enjoy the episode and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content, and we have some bonus content from this very show, uh, as well as other additional episodes that we never release publicly, please go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. This week we want to thank all of our new Patreon subscribers who made this particular episode possible. Thanks to the following wonderful Patreons for joining our team, starting with Michael Graff. Chester McJerk. I, I like that. We got, okay, here's, here's Mark's weekly butchering. Sean Van Develde. 
Uh, I think that's okay. Uh, Art Art Vandalay? (laughs) (laughs) Paul Grillo. Christopher Long. That was easy. And Mark Diefenderfer. That's a great name. I like that. I love it. I love it. Mark's Mark's a good guy. I know him personally. Uh, Well, you know, besides all that, thank you again, everybody. Let's get right to the action and the awesome interview. So we hope you enjoy our episode entitled, Mark? Merchandising. Stand a little straighter, walk a little prouder, be an innovator, laugh a little louder, go for every trader, we can show you how to, and when will you be then? You belong, you belong, you belong, you belong to the Merry Marble Marching Society. All right, Dan, we are joined on the phone by uh, pop culture expert and aficionado Rob Roos. Many of you probably know Rob from uh, his appearances on uh, AMC's uh, comic book men show. It's kind of the memorabilia and consultant to the Jay and Silent Bob secret stash. I mean, Rob is also the... uh, one of the founders and creators of the New Jersey Horrorcom and Film Festival. And uh, we're going to have Rob talk to us a little bit about some of the early uh, Spider-Man uh, memorabilia and uh, merchandise that, that appeared out during the, uh, during the late 60s. You know, we, we talked, obviously, earlier in the season about the first big kind of non-comic book Spider-Man licensing opportunity with the Spider-Man animated series in 1967, Dan, um, but, you know, obviously there was a lot of other things that were coming out of that in terms of toys and costumes and lunchboxes and board games and all that. And we we're hoping that, uh, Rob, you could put this in a little bit of uh, context. I guess starting with saying, I mean, you, you, you're obviously a big fan of, of comics and, and, and memorabilia and Spider-Man. You said that he's one of your first comics that you picked up. I mean, what are some of your earliest recollections of some of the other like, non-comic book Marvel merchandise that was out there when, when, when you were younger or just that you've seen out there? Uh, you know, thank you. Thank you very much for the introduction. Also, uh, I want to throw in there, I've got 85 producing credits on AMG's comic book, but 85, very proud of that, much more than my appearances. But uh, again, the first comic book I ever bought as a kid was uh, Amazing Spider-Man 101 off the news rack, and it kind of uh, started me down the way. Spider-Man is like my number two favorite superhero right behind Captain America. Uh, I'm a huge Kirby fan, but also on, on the same level, Big Toe. But uh, there was always an argument about the first actual Spider-Man memorabilia. My good friend John Shimano out of uh, Connecticut is convinced that the 1963 Ben Cooper costume is that first uh, item. I have no reason to disagree with him. He prices it at some crazy price. I don't price it quite as crazy as he does. And then obviously right after that, the Marvel Mania uh, Marching Society and then MS or Marvel Mania began. And, and that created a lot of uh, premium, premium rings that went with, uh, you know, the, the uh, fan club, uh, the pin. They did a pin that had all the earlier Marvel characters, including Spider-Man. But Spider-Man doesn't really ramp up as far as collectibles until like uh, 65, 66. And I think the most noteworthy uh, piece to come out of that that time period is the ideal uh, Captain Action uh, Spider-Man outfit that came in a box. It was the second series, not the first. 
so 67, 60, 66, 67, and really just an amazing uh, piece, probably one of the uh, holy grails of Spider-Man collecting to find that piece in the box. You know, that's a piece that could bring easily uh, two to 25, maybe even 5,000 in high grade. Uh, so those are the things that, you know, started it early on. Mark's Toys did a, a number of static figures in 63, 64, which would have uh, included Spider-Man. They were also offered in comic books. But if you go back to the early comic books, a lot of those comic books had, had premium offers, Spider-Man-related material. They did pillows, they did posters, they did inflatable pillows, which are actually pretty cool. Uh, tops uh, did flying superheroes. There was a Spider-Man version of that. That's still uh, early to mid-60s. Uh, Aurora Model Kits did a great series of Marvel kits. They did Spider-Man. They did Captain America. They did uh, the Hulk. The Spider-Man's pretty incredible. He's got, like, Craven uh, the Hunter all tied up. And that's still mid-60s. So there was a big blast. I think they were trying to follow the Batman craze of 66, which uh, when I was a kid, I was more of a Batman fan at that point. I'm, you know, eight years old and Batman's on TV. And then I read, you know, the Marvel comics and start moving over to the Marvel world. DC had produced so many Batman toys that Marvel took note. You know, Stan Lee, as great a writer as as he's been through history, his real talent was advertising and promotion and producing. He knew, you know, you could do a record and send it out, uh, you know, having the the, the bullpen singing songs about Spider-Man as a premium offer and people would want that. So, yeah, it's just, you know, there was a plethora of, of materials, but early on, it, it really didn't crank up until like 70. And then Mego got the licensing and things kind of got crazy. And IEHI saw the Azure Camway, which was connected to Remco, they got licensing. And just, you know, you went to your Toys R Us, which doesn't exist anymore, but back in the day, they'd have, you know, piles of, of Spider Man toys. Any questions? Well, you've covered a lot of the stuff we really wanted to talk about uh, very quickly there. Um, so we're going to go into a little bit more detail. You know, we, we've read that DC really had a leg up on Marvel in, in, in the regard of distribution, which is why they seem yeah. so much more adept at getting their characters out there. Can you speak to how Marvel's distribution model impacted their ability to license some of these characters early on? I think you, you look at the history of comics. Silver Age comics starts with Rebirth of Flash in 1956. So they're creating character-driven comic books seven years before Marvel, or actually, what, uh, four or five years before Marvel with the advent of uh, Fantastic Four. So they have a little bit of this running start in, in, in getting licensing out there. Now, they really didn't start licensing heavily DC until... 63, 64, and then 66, everything blows up. But, you know, the distribution back then wasn't like it is today because today you've got a sole company. You know, you had multiple different levels of distributors, Seagate, you know, Captain Company, all these little privately held, you know, they would take, all right, we'll take 50,000 comic books and we'll distribute them to our newsstands in LA. And, and, DC National Periodicals had, had their own wing that they had already owned since they had cultivated it over, you know, 10 years prior to Marvel being coming Marvel. Marvel was really Atlas in the 50s. The, the, the comic code sort of destroyed a lot of distribution points. 
and everything had to be reset. And Atlas was doing horror books, so they had to kill off all those horror books and you know, romance books and war books. And then they, they were doing like Amazing Fantasy, which was actually a uh, horror monster book until they did Spider-Man issue. And, and you know, they played around with Fantastic Four. And they played around with the Hulk. Hulk, original Hulk only ran six issues, got killed off. They they bring back, uh, you know, they create the Avengers and they bring back uh, Captain America. So they're, they're a fledgling company. You can't think of like Disney owning Marvel as today. You know, maybe there's, there's subscriptions in 1962 or maybe speculation 65,000, 70,000. It's that. You know, they, they get this huge bounce in 63, 64, 65 with Spider-Man, Avengers, like, like hitting, uh, even X-Men wasn't huge, but it still sold books. Uh, Fantastic Four was huge. You know, they had Sergeant Fury. So they, they start to build up this catalog of material and they, they're seeking distributors and they go out with the independent distributors. So DC was definitely the big dog and it was a big dog for a long, long time. You know, uh, you know, these are Superman movies in the seventies. They tried to do Marvel movies in the 70s, and, and, and you know, it wasn't uh, great. You know, they did a live-action uh, Amazing Spider-Man TV show, which is kind of like relegated to the history of, uh, you know, campy TV shows, kind of like Batman, but Batman has legs. Everybody loves Adam West. Everybody loves uh, Burt Ward, because they were on and, and on and on and on. And, you know, they came on in 66 during, like, prime time, 67 prime time. Then they go off the air and they get syndicated and all of a sudden they're on every afternoon. When I came home, in, you know, through the early 70s, they were always on television. 3.30, 4 o'clock, WPIX, DC, Batman. It's huge. There is no Marvel. There's Marvel, you know, at one point they did the, uh, the Saturday morning cartoon early on, where it was basically Kirby art with, uh, you know, moving pictures, static pictures with dialogue. And to me, I love that stuff because it, 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 a lot of it was like right out of the comic books. They didn't even rewrite anything. You know, Batman was all restricted, but a lot of those early Marvel cartoons, which you can watch them today, like, holy shit, it's a cartoon? But, you know, the reality is it's just, it, it's so 60s. I mean, I have that, most of those on VHS, which I still watch. But so, so they dealt with a lot of small independent distributors and they just continued to grow. You know, Diamond doesn't even come into play until the 90s. When you, you had mentioned earlier on, uh, you know, in terms of like kind of, you know, Stan Lee's creativity, the, the, the Merry Marvel Marching Society. And talk a little bit about the ingenuity of, of the, of the well, Marching Society in terms of the, the items. And well, then also, like, I mean, are these things you can still find today? Are they, are, they, are they valuable in terms of the stuff that they were giving away then? Yeah, well, the early stuff, uh, uh, the 60s, DC. Oh, excuse me, 60s Marvel superhero stuff uh, is drawing a premium now. 63 is the year for Marvel, where everything like cohesiveness and gels, and, and, and that's the birth date of, of the Marvel watching society, Marvel mania, the superhero age, the silver age for Marvel is, is that year. And, and those items that were produced in the 63, especially the Marvel mania stuff, is always going to hold a certain amount of uh, prestige. I have uh, gumball rings from that time period, simple uh, plastic 66, 67 rings, which go for 100 to 250. It's very simple stuff. And it, you can't find them. And eventually, they're not only will they retain their value, 
But but if, if things go forward, they'll probably increase in value, I would say. But they may flex the, you know, records and club kits and cards and posters and and uh, all sorts of things, actually. You would mail away. But that's one thing that Marvel did in, in, in Stanley's Genius was, all right, we're going to bring everything to the kids. So the kids will send us a dollar and they'll clip out something off the back of a comic book and, and we'll send them this packet. And they sent out, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands. And in doing that, they, they ensured a fandom. So you, you create the space through this, this organic, you know, we do it today online, Kickstarter, we do it today online, we offer free things, we do it today online, you send five bucks and I'll send you a t-shirt, whatever you do. But, but that really goes back to, goes back to Hopalong on Cassidy, certainly. It goes back into like Dell Comics, we do that sort of thing in the 40s and 50s, but stand new. Now you look at DC, DC really didn't have a, a viable running fan club. I, I, I mean, to, to my best knowledge, I don't ever remember seeing an offer for a fan club. Maybe Superpowers or Super Friends at some point in the late 70s, mid 70s, they came up with an idea, you know, join our, join our ranks. But Stan Lee pushed it and he pushed it. And when, when he pushed it to a point where they, the subscription started to fade a little bit in 68, 69, in 70, comes up with the idea of boom, oh, Friends of Old Marvel. Because that would have been around for ten years or eight, ten years. So, so he starts it all over again and starts, you know, Stranko is doing uh, the fanzine and, and, and the posters, and, and this great stuff comes out. And that's the other edge of that quarter is like you've got Marvel on one side and you got Friends of Old, uh, uh, you got Marvel Mania on one side and you got Foom on the other side. And the Foom stuff's amazing. You know, we we did a uh, a transaction with the uh, coin medallions that they offered in uh, 74, 75, which offered, they offered uh, Cap, no, they offered uh, Spider-Man, Conan, and I believe the Hulk, I'd have to double check that. You see the Cap of the Hulk, for some reason I think it's the Hulk. And, and, you know, that was another one of those things that Stanley would do, because he understood I could make these things, and we can make these things and, and they'll buy them. And you could buy a Hulk, bronze Hulk medallion, from 1974 out of the back of a comic book for maybe like six bucks posted. And today they cost $200. It, it's just the nature of the collecting base. You know, one of the items we've read about is this six foot tall Spider-Man cutout that Steve Ditko designed. I'm curious if you could speak to the significance of this, you know, given we, what we know about Ditko, you got to wonder what he thought about a giant Spider-Man cutout being sold to fans. Are, are, are you aware of this piece? They did a lot of cutouts. I assume it's a piece that was probably done in the 70s, right? Yeah, I think so, or late 60s. It's him standing, right, crossed with his arms crossed? Yes. That's the one I, it comes to my, the back of my uh, head without looking up online and cheating. <laughs> but, uh, I think they've always had issues with Spider-Man. I, I don't know if it was, if it was just monetarily, because what I understand is that he would always get checks. You know, you know, he ran an office in New York City forever, literally forever until the day he died. I was told that, that he would always get checks. So I assume some of those checks came from Marvel. I don't think he was in, in need for money. And, and, and as a libertarianist, certainly with the capitalist slant, but I, I mean, how much is, is too much, you know? But I, I don't know. I don't think that one cut up would have riled him as much as, as just 
the history of Spider-Man and, and, and him kind of witnessing what went on between uh, Stan and Jack. And, and I always think of Ditko as being a, a Ditko guy first, but probably a Kirby guy second and not a Stan Lee fan. And, and, and that probably played into more of uh, why he was so anti Spider-Man, even though it was something he created. Well, speaking of Ditko and designs and, and I guess, creator, creative owner issues, you know, we we talked about this a little bit early, you know, on our show a few episodes ago. The the infamous, you, you talk about the Ben Cooper Spider-Man costume, but there's, it's not even speculation, but there's talk that there was a Ben Cooper costume, I guess, what was it, Dan, from like the late 50s, they, they cited yeah. it, that, looked like, that, that kind of looked like Spider-Man, you know, like, or it was like yeah. an early iteration of Spider-Man. No argument. What's, what's, your, what's your familiarity with that? I mean, do you, do you give well, credence to the idea that that influenced what the ultimate design for Spider-Man ended up being? Yeah. I have to think at some level, I mean, did Stan see it? Did Stan say to uh, Steve, oh, let's make this costume? I mean, it is the spider, but it's not like the spider. It's not Spider-Man. My, my buddy actually runs the Mego uh, Stretch Hulk site, you know, John uh, Cimino. So he's like an old, old friend of mine. And, and he's the one who sort of brought this to the foreground. He, he's friends with, with a lot of the old, old, old artists. And, and he, you know, the speculation is that they got some inspiration from this. But I, I don't know. I, I'm going to disagree on some level. Because, I mean, sure, it's the kid, you know, if you look at the ad, the kid in the spider outfit. But it's not really Spider-Man. Yeah, it's just Spider-Man, actually. <laughs> Maybe they got the idea. Who knows? But, you know, Ben Cooper being Ben Cooper didn't license it. So there you go. So Stan saw this, maybe saw some kid came to the door, but they manufactured that as early as 54. So it's not like that was 10 years beforehand. Was there a red circle character known as the spider? I'm sure. Oh, well, there's a, a famous pulp, pick, uh, pulp magazine character known as the spider. I believe you're so right. That goes back to the 30s. That's like a Sax Romer character. You know, I think, again, it's Stan. It's Stan being the, you know, P.T. Barnum of Silver Age comic books, the guy who could understand that there's a mass market for everything, and they needed to, like, push it. So Spider-Man comes out, you know, he does one issue in Amazing Fantasy, and he goes right into, you know, Spider-Man number one and runs forever, and it's, the greatest thing that Marvel Comics ever came up with is that is their, uh, their A number one character. Well, let me add a wrinkle to this Ben Cooper thing because, like you said earlier, that the Ben Cooper costume of the official costume of Spider Man is the first licensed, you know, like Spider Man item or Marvel item um, on sale. Do yeah. you think that perhaps? Ben Cooper saw the character and said, hey, that looks a lot like our costume, and they kind of signed a deal in secret to be quiet about perhaps the, the, the design was stolen? Well, well, I, I talked to Ben Cooper people, you know, directly, and they weren't that, uh, I mean, they were organized, but they didn't think on that level. you got to remember, in 1963, how much was the licensing for Spider-Man? I mean, how much was that first licensing? 50 bucks? So... So Ben Cooper, who had produced this costume nearly 10 years earlier, nine years earlier for the 1954 Halloween you know, season, you know, maybe they just either, either they went 
and talk directly to Marvel or Marvel went over to, you know, 500 Fifth Avenue when they had the uh, toy fair and they were set up, which is probably, you know, 10 blocks, 12 blocks away from the Marvel, uh, you know, offices in New York city. So they have toy fair and Ben Cooper's there, of course, because they are hawking all their Ben Cooper stuff and doing, you know, doing, you know, what they do. And Stan walked in and probably sat down and said, Hey, look, you know, we want to produce a, Spider-Man outfit, you know, you know, can you do it for us? You know, we'll pay you X amount of dollars. That seems more logical. Uh, I'm surprised nobody's ever understand this question because it seems like that was, it would be a question that he could answer since he's still alive. <laughs> no, I mean, to that point, so, you know, you, you had kind of ran through earlier all, you know, especially starting around like 66, 67, all the different items. And you talked about like the, the, the Marvel Flyers, there were trading cards from Donruss, there were uh, the, the, the record, the golden record with the comics inserts and everything. I mean, yeah, were these items considered like successful in that regard in their day? I mean, like, they're collectible yeah, now, I, but at the time, were these considered successful? Yes, I, I have to think so. I mean, again, you know, you had like you know, a mead paper would buy the rights to, to produce uh, three-wing binders, 71, 72, 73. And, and, you know, they would sell out. And they were like the, the, the predecessor. Like every year, you'd get a binder. But interestingly enough, the lunchbox just really doesn't happen until, for Marvel, didn't happen until the 70s, I believe. Whereas Batman is 66, you know, and Superman, has, the first one, I think, is 54. Of course, in the first uh, lunchbox, it's 1950. But, but, you know, so some things they got on a little bit later. Uh, and then, you know, they would do one for every character at some point, more or less, you know, uh, and a generic one for Marvel superheroes. You know, I, I think there's a lot of success because, uh, you know, with the train and, and the train's still going, I, you know, we're still like flying full speed ahead. Do you think that the uh, early placement of Spider-Man at the forefront of these merch- merchandising opportunities really helped to solidify him as the face of Marvel Comics then and today? Yes. And the real reason is you look at some of the other characters. Like it, certainly the Hulk becomes very famous in 75, 76, 77, 78 with the advent of the TV show. You know, there's, there's more uh, uh, juice. But, but if the Hulk had been the face of Marvel, would never have succeeded. And Marvel would have collapsed completely because when the Incredible Hulk first came out in the comic book, it only lasted six issues and needed to be rebirthed later on in, in, in one of the sales books. And I think that's got a lot to do with it too. You know, Marvel never gave up on their hero, heroes. You know, you don't see like, uh, you know, uh, they, they would test them. I mean, even like uh, Iron Man was more of a, a test character when he first came out of sales and suspense. You know, you look at it, you know, he's not a, a number one character. He was never a number one character. Even when that first book came out, he was never a number one character. He was like, still a, you know, that, that Iron Man number one from, uh, I think, 67, 68, that was not a, a real popular book forever. You know, you could buy that for under $100 up until maybe 10 years ago. Spider-Man has the same power. Spider-Man is the kid next door. Spider-Man is the nerd. Spider-Man is the underdog. Again, I, I, I keep making you go back to some of the stuff you said earlier on here, but you you mentioned the um, the Captain Action figure, which I know 
you, you, I think you even used the exact words, kind of like the holy grail of uh, action yeah. figures. One of the things that interested me about this too was, you know, this 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 figure had all these interchangeable outfits, right? So there was there was a Spider-Man outfit, but there's also Superman, Flash Gordon, Captain America, and, and you know, you were kind of talking earlier about also kind of how different licensing and merchandising was then as it is now. I mean, now... Right. So there was a Flash Gordon, there was a Buck Rogers, there was a Phantom. Right. Now, now it's, it's mid-60s, and King Features that owned those rights were really big. I mean, they were huge. You know, cartoons every day on television, newspaper, Phantom still like every day. Uh, they did, I'm pretty sure they had their hands in Prince Valiant. You know, that was, that was a Prince Valiant was in color on the back page of, you know, the major newspapers that had comics straight through the 60s into the 70s, you know. So licensing was huge for some features. And then, then you look at, uh, they had uh, Captain Action, had Green Hornet, which is really the top piece, or was really the top piece for a long, long time. A box Green Hornet would have brought, you know, $5,000 in the late 80s, whereas, maybe more, whereas the... Uh, Spider-Man would have bought half that. Nowadays, the Green Hornet probably brings about $5,000, and the Spider-Man, one recently sold for $25,000. Now, it was a wow. like, pristine, high-grade, you know, uh, they sell for less, less than ten, and in, in lesser grade. But, you know, Spider-Man, and, and it's really the first uh, major Spider-Man action figure style doll. I, I consider 12-inch figures dolls. I collect action figures, which are five and a half inches or, or, or less. But that was it. You know, you don't see another Spider-Man figure come along until the comic action heroes and the world's greatest superheroes manufactured by Mego. You know, and then the comic action heroes are the first uh, three-inch to three-and-three-quarter-inch style figures. They did both DC and, uh, and Marvel again. But that, that ideal toy, you know, an ideal is an odd company because they made the best superhero toys in the 60s. I mean, the Batman uh, JLA playset is an amazing toy for guys like my age, you know, who played with static three-inch three tall figures before the action figure was invented. But that was, you know, it because the box was amazing and just so, the way that they would package things was incredible. You know, they did Batman uh, utility belt, which is very, very rare. Probably brings between twenty-five and thirty-five thousand at this point. You know, for DC Batman collectors, that's the top piece to get that in the box. Whereas for Marvel, uh, you know, collectors from the sixties, the top piece is the Captain Action uh, outfit. So, so Rob, before before we we let you go, we you know we talked about a lot of different items and collectibles and toys today. I mean, is there anything, you know, just on a totally personal level, nothing to do with value or anything, nothing, something that just stands out to you as a, as a favorite of yours of what we were going over today. I mean, is there something that, you know, no matter what will be part of your, part of your, your, your has a place in your heart forever. You know, I have my, uh, amazing, uh, Spider-Man number one Oh one. I still have that. So uh, it's one thing, you know, I've, I've been collecting comic books since about 1970. I went to my first convention in 1975. The only reason I wanted to go was to meet Jack Kirby, and I was like 13 years old. And, and you know, I've done, at this point in my life, I've done well over 1,200 conventions worldwide. You know, I've done, I did my first San Diego in 93. And I've traveled, you know, 
you know, had a, a, an incredible life, really, when you think about it. Cause I've been immersed in, in pop culture and toys and collectibles and comic books for, for 35, 40, 50 years, almost 50 years, you know. It'll be 50 years eventually. But, you know, I think for me, that amazing Spider-Man 101. I have toys, you know, valuable Spider-Man toys. I've got the rings. I've got the badges, the pins. I have the Marvel Mania club kit and the phones. I've got a complete run of phones, you know, with them. I've got family signed things. But I always goes back to Amazing Spider-Man 101 for me because that's really where I got the light turned on. For me, it was, you know, it's a fascinating moment as a kid. We all go through it because we get attracted to, you know, cartoons. And then we read, like, wow, this is a cartoon. I can read it over and over again. And for me, I sort of, like, really set a tone. And I just sort of followed that path ever since. I, you know, ironies of ironies. I worked, you know, corporate jobs and, you know, traveled the world, and here I am. It all falls back to Amazing Spider-Man 101. Well, Rob, where can we find you now? If people wanted to kind of keep up with your work or you on the Internet, where would they do so? I am on the Internet. Uh, I have a website called uh, Pop Culturism. I can be found on Twitter and Instagram as Pop, Pop Culturism. Laugh a little louder, grow forever greater. We can show you how so thanks again to the great Rob Bruce for coming on our show and sharing uh, his insights about this era of uh, comic book merchandising and licensing. And also thanks to all of you for joining us on our 10th episode of our second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Uh, Dan, our next episode should be out in a few weeks. And what's the title of that show going to be? Yeah, it's going to be called Secret Agent Parents. It's our discussion of Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 5. And I guess the overall significance of Peter's parents becoming a part of the narrative and super spies for S.H.I.E.L.D. Like you do. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number one and number two, also known as numbers 802 and 803, the start of the brand new Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley run. Dan, we also got a, a couple additional minutes with Rob Bruce uh, to talk a little bit about uh, some information about Steve Ditko and his recent passing. Uh, so check that out in your Patreon feed as well. Uh, there's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of both the new Amazing Spider-Man run and everything else that we're doing around here. Uh, remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, swarm b-book reviews, extended interviews like our one with Rob Bruce here, mailbags, and more. And of course, for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commission artwork, uh, this most recent time will be something from Alex Saviak, which we saw a preview of, Dan, and let's get excited, right? I'm super pumped about it. I, I can't wait to see the finished thing, but he sent us a teaser of it, and it's going to be pretty awesome, I think. Indeed. I hope, I hope, I hope you like girls, people. <laughs> <laughs> also, be sure to check out some of our other shows, like The Ultimate Spin, who sadly just concluded their show with an amazing interview, which I guess isn't sad because it's an amazing interview, with Jason Latour as he exits the role of writing Spider-Gwen. I think they called it the, the Exit Gwinterview. Oh, very um, good. There you go. And also check out The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, where they recently discussed Spider-Man's final adventure ever. No, really, 
The guy is done. He's never going to be a superhero ever again. You'll never be in a comic again. It's the final adventure of Spider-Man. Makes sense. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join. Just check this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. Well, Dan, with, with all that information out there, there can't possibly be any other place where we can find your work or talk to you, right? Actually, there is, Mark, so hold on to your hat. What? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at at SupSpiderTalk, where I'm currently I'm detailing all of the hidden connections I found in the new Spider-Man comics with their kind of like older comic uh, origins. Like, when did Spider-Man and Daredevil get a pizza together? And the answer is Amazing Spider-Man 396. Yeah, that was a good find, Dan, and I, I remember that comic well, and I just did not remember that detail from it. So, <laughs> What can I say? I'm a nerd. I love it. We're what about you, Mark? Where can we find you being nerdy online? Well, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. Uh, I don't know if I'm finding such minor details from Spider-Man comics, uh, but, but I'm more than happy to retweet yours, Dan, and, and <laughs> leech, off, leech off of your nerdiness. <laughs> and, of course, as always, get the book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, from Triumph Books and uh, wherever books are sold. It was not an Amazon Prime deal, Dan. Which made me sad. Then again, they probably would have been giving it away at a really low price, and I wouldn't have gotten any royalties for it. So, anyway, buy the book. <laughs> That's a lot of information. You know, Mark, we were talking about merchandising today, and I don't own a lot of Spider-Man toys, but I do own a Spider-Man action figure and an Uncle Ben action figure. So I often set them up, you know, in, in the famous scene where Uncle Ben is dying and spider-man's arms because that's totally something that happened and you know while uncle ben is dying i always put on my uncle ben voice and i have him say my favorite phrase mark you know the one because we often play with our dolls together what what uh what what is that phrase yeah before i go any further i feel like we're we're getting dangerously close back like scatological exits about uncle ben (laughs) we gotta watch this (laughs) (laughs) this one's totally not scatological though this really happened Okay, well, as Uncle Ben and not Jimmy the Elbow would say, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Spider Talk.